All right. Well, thank you, JP. And we're just thankful to partner uh, with you and thankful for what God is doing uh, in uh, his life. And I want to invite you, if you're a part of our church, to come back uh, this evening at five o'clock as we will have our prayer night. We do this once a month where we get together as a church family. We just pray for things that are going on in the life of our church and community. And tonight we'll be praying for our missions partnerships and praying for uh, our local outreach efforts, specifically as some of those start to gear uh, back up and pray for different things in the life of our church. So that'll be at five o'clock here in the sanctuary. I'd love for you to be a part of that. If you are new here today, uh, I just want to say that we're so glad to have you with us, or maybe you're watching online for the first time. We're glad to have you as our guest, and we would love to know who you are. Uh, you can text the word CONNECT uh, to the number that is on the screen, and one of us will follow up with you this week. Also, we have our Discover Bayshore lunch today. Uh, you're welcome to join us for that. That's uh, immediately following the 11 o'clock service at 12.15, and the Fellowship Hall will feed you and share with you about who we are as a church. As a church, we typically are going through books of the Bible, and right now we're going through the Gospel of Mark. That's the second book in the New Testament. And through this section of Scripture that we're going through in Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, we've titled our series, He is Greater Than Religion, because we believe that what Jesus is showing us is really he's greater than religion, but specifically that religion has always existed, faith has always existed to serve the relationship with God. How we do church, how we practice all those things really serves the relationship with God. He uh, is over that, and those things that we do that we call religion, if you want to say that, should be in submission to our relationship with him. Well, something that surprised me about being involved in church, just to clarify, I didn't go to church when I was a kid. And when I was in high school, I gave my life to Christ and started going to church my senior year of high school and uh, responded to the call uh, to be a leader in the church, to be uh, in vocational ministry when I was 20. One, and I've had the privilege of uh, working for a few churches, planting a church, and pastoring this church. And something I've been surprised about, and I really didn't get when I first became a Christian, is how many people are religious, are church people, and the reason isn't necessarily Jesus. The reason isn't necessarily, man, I love God. And I want to know him more, and I want to do what he says. I mean, I was surprised by that when we first started going to church as a family, because I was like, why, why would you do all this? I was surprised by that and planting a church and people coming into the church and different reasons. And with love, I've been surprised being a part of a church that's 110 years old and, and pretty established. And today, what we're going to look at, I, I think, speaks to this. We're going to look at two separate stories and we'll read through those stories and kind of talk about some observations as we go through those accounts. And then I want to talk about what we learn from that and really kind of wrap it up with how it applies to us, what it means for us. So I'm going to begin reading Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So in their journeys around Galilee, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field. 
it was common in that day to cut through grain fields. They didn't necessarily have the roads set up the way we have today, and they didn't have fences uh, marking, you know, property lines. They would have stones that kind of set up boundaries or property. So many people with large grain fields would have these paths going through their grain field that allowed people to walk through, you know, in the same spot. And, and, and so they were walking on one of these designated paths through the grain, and, and Matthew actually tells us in his gospel that the disciples were hungry, so they ate. And, and this was okay to do. In fact, the law prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, that if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the law said if you were walking through a grain field, it was okay to grab some grain, but don't start you know, meal prepping for the week, basically. I mean, you are fine to do that. But it's the Sabbath. And when Jesus would walk around by this point in his ministry, there was often a crowd. And by this point in his ministry, in that crowd was often the Pharisees, the religious crowd. And verse 24 says, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, to, to understand, Genesis chapter one tells us that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day, he rested and he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Later, when God gives his laws to the people of Israel through Moses in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, he tells them to keep the Sabbath holy. Laws would then be communicated in regards to how not to profane the Sabbath and how to keep the Sabbath holy. This was a part of Israel. This was a part of God's people's way of doing life. But as time went on, they wanted to keep the Sabbath holy. They didn't want to profane the Sabbath, so they created some additional rules to serve as a guide for how you could avoid breaking the laws in relation to the Sabbath. The scribes had actually come up with 39 works that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Reaping was one of these works that was prohibited on the Sabbath. Pharisees interpreted, certainly in this instance, but in other instances as well, picking of the grain as reaping. You weren't supposed to prepare a meal on the Sabbath. That's supposed to be done the day before. They called that day the day of preparation. You would prepare everything for the Sabbath so you didn't have to do these things on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, look, Look at what are they, they are doing. They are your disciples. Why are they doing this? And Jesus says to them, verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, Jesus does what he almost always does when he is questioned about God, when he's questioned about following God. He goes to the word. The, this is an issue of interpretation, and the best way to interpret scripture is to look at other 
Scripture. Jesus references 1 Samuel 21 when Abimelech, the high priest, offered the showbread to David and his men as they were off to battle. Leviticus chapter 24 tells us that showbread, was, which was a part of the ceremonial worship, was actually reserved to be eaten by the priest. Now, tradition had been and, and is that in this instance of David, it was excused because David's was God's anointed, and since God's anointed needed it, they could eat of this bread. And that's really what's happening with God's instructions in Leviticus about the showbread, about the bread, and, 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 and about how the priestly duties are to be carried out. In Matthew's gospel, it tells us that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but they did worship on the Sabbath, and the Old Testament priest had to violate the Sabbath rules in order to perform their duties, but they were considered guiltless because the temple duties superseded the rules about the Sabbath. The laws are to be read together with the purpose of God in mind. And there was a greater purpose than the Sabbath in the temple, in the worship that was associated with the temple. And so Jesus says, I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. If the holiness of the temple is a justifiable reason to break the Sabbath laws, then something greater than the temple is certainly also reason to justify breaking the Sabbath laws. But what is greater than the temple? Not much. But the God who made the temple is greater than the temple. This is a claim of deity. Back to Mark's gospel, it says that he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Son of man was a messianic term. Jesus is referring to the one who was promised about in the Old Testament prophets. And he's claiming to be that son of man. And he says, the Sabbath was made for man. The reason that the Sabbath exists is so that man could know God On the Sabbath, man would know that the Lord is God. And if David could eat bread on the Sabbath, or excuse me, if David could eat bread in the temple that was reserved for the high priest, then the disciples can eat bread, uh, grain when they're on mission with Jesus. Now, I wanna make a quick note here. He's not even dealing with whether or not he was glad that the disciples did this, right? Like, for all we know, he could have been to the disciples on the side like, why'd you do that? You didn't need to eat that. You'll be fine. You're not hungry. Teenagers, some of them were teenagers, you know. I'm starving. No, you're not. You'll be okay. Okay, sorry, I just had to get that out. But um, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying to the Pharisees, 
your hearts are in the wrong place. Because loving people, loving your fellow man is greater than the temple rules and is greater than the Sabbath rules. We see another account as we move on to chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that this is another Sabbath. So this is not the same day. Mark kind of structures this all together for his teaching purposes. But there's this man, as they walk into the synagogue in the Sabbath, who's either injured or he's diseased. Luke tells us that it's his right hand. This impairs his ability to work, his livelihood. And if he has a family, his family's livelihood. And the text tells us the Pharisees were watching him. It, they is the Pharisees, and it says watch in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means they kept on watching. That's what they were doing. They were watching for Jesus to do something wrong. Verse 3 says, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now Luke shows us in chapter 6, verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. As Jesus does this, Jesus knows what the Pharisees are thinking. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. He's asking, what does God want of you on the Sabbath? Who does God want you to be? on the Sabbath. Now, in Matthew's account, he gets a little more clear, a little more plain about what Jesus was saying to them. Matthew chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He says, if you had a sheep fall into a pit, you'd work to get that sheep out of that pit because that sheep is valuable to you and your livelihood and your family. Now, apparently, it's okay for them to plot a man's death on the Sabbath because that's what they're doing, but it's not okay for a man to heal another man on the Sabbath. Jesus exposes their hearts. Verse five says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. When it says in this text that Jesus looked at them with anger, it means that he looked at them with wrath. He looked at them with indignation. James Brooks, the commentator, says, Jesus wasn't angry only about their insensitivity, but at the entire system of legalism where the letter of law is more important than the spirit. Now, this was a violation of the law of minor cures on the Sabbath. In order to heal on the Sabbath, it had to be to save a life. Now, what's interesting here is the problem is that Jesus is working on the Sabbath to heal, but actually Jesus didn't have to work to heal. Jesus just spoke, and somebody would be healed. So if we really want to get down to it, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, I don't have to. 
I'm, the, I'm God, my word heals. I don't have to do all the chants that you do and the, the, the potions that you do and the, all these things. I just speak and someone is healed. But that doesn't matter because they had a goal here. And that's what happens in legalism. People begin to see everything through the lens of what they are looking for. When, when you become this obsessed with the law and the letter of the law and maybe issues associated with the law, then you miss what God is doing and what God wants. Jesus would say to the Pharisees over and over again in, in, in the accounts that we have when he's questioned, he says, have you not read? Now these are experts on the Bible. And he asked them, have you even read the Bible? I, I feel like sometimes in church, people who've grown up in church, who've, who've done the Bible drills, who've been in more Bible studies than you could name, they become so obsessed with something, they become so obsessed with religion, and you want to ask, have you ever read the Bible? Because you're missing the very purpose of what God has to say. The text tells us in verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Luke says that they were filled with fury. So what do we learn from these accounts? Well, first we learn that the Sabbath was made for man to know God. The reason that we have the Sabbath is that God wanted us to know him. And the Sabbath was a gift for us to know him. In the Psalms, he says, be still and know that I am God. And so the Sabbath is a way that we could cease striving and know that he is God. It's a gift to be enjoyed by man revolved around God. It gives you Rest. It gave the slaves a day off. It gave the poor a day off. It gave the land a day off. It gave the animals a day off. And if God says something is good, hey, take a day off and enjoy it. And you would think people would be like in that day, especially how hard it was to work in almost every profession, hey, we get a day off to worship and, and sing and, and pray and rest. This is a good idea. But the religious have to come along. This is the religious walking. They have to come along. I don't know why I did that. They have to come along and say, okay, we need a rule book for this now. And you have to memorize the book and obey the book. And we're gonna watch you and we're gonna discipline you if you don't obey the book. It's not a day off anymore. It's work now. I mean, I was gonna read, go to church, eat, nap, but now I got a lot of work to do in keeping this Sabbath. I mean, we miss the whole purpose of the Sabbath here. You know, today, I mean, and it's not as popular anymore, but there's been debate about what is the Sabbath day, right? There's like a whole, like, I would say sect, but uh, there's even denominations, churches, totally revolved around Sabbath was Saturday originally. That was what the seventh day of the week is, which, you know, we think. But, um, and so they're like, we worship on Saturday and do all these things on Saturday, but Actually, Sabbat was Friday evening to Saturday evening, so they're not even following it the way that those people did. And that just shows you how much they're missing it. And this was a debate back in the early church about how to, should we keep the Sabbath? Can we worship on the first, 
first day of the week, like the churches started doing, uh, you know, debates about all kinds of stuff. And that's why Paul says to the Colossians, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's where the meat of what we're doing is, is Christ. That's where our focus is on, is on Christ. So the battlefield here is the Sabbath, but the war is legalism. What we're seeing in the Pharisees and Jesus is this battle about the Sabbath, but the real war is legalism. Now, what, what is legalism? Legalism is living by the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And it is living out of devotion to the law, not out of devotion to God. Legalism is living by the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And it is living out of devotion to the law and keeping the law and not out of devotion to God. Now, today in our culture, we typically err on the other side of this, just to be clear. And what I would call either liberalism or lawlessness. And with liberalism, I don't mean voting Democrat. I mean, really what we're saying is, I don't need anyone to tell me what to do or how to live. And in fact, you better not say anything that tells me how to live, right? And, and I, I like, I, if you know me, like I am not strict about a lot of stuff. And I've been called legalistic because I've been like, hey, you're a member of our church and like you haven't been in three months. We miss you. Don't tell me I have to go to church to be a Christian. They don't say it like that, but they, they post it on Facebook. <laughs> or like, hey, you know, like why don't you, you know, be a little more generous? Or why don't you study the Bible? And it's like I've been accused of being legalistic because of these things, which is just funny. And it's really us buying to this idea of our culture that says, like, you better accept me for what I do, regardless of what I do, and you better not say anything that makes me feel otherwise. And, 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 and we call this love. And if we're honest, it's a very cheap love. It's the kind of love that says to children who want to play in the street in traffic, Oh, that's what you want to do? Follow your heart. That's not love. To not say to our brothers and sisters in Christ, hey, I haven't seen you, or how come you're living this way? In love is not love. And so in lawlessness, people ignore what God says in order to ignore God. They want to be autonomous. And ultimately, they're not trusting in him, and it's not good for them. What I'm talking about today is not in defense of that. So I'm not saying like be lawless or, or liberal when it comes to God's word. But legalism is also not the answer to that. It's not the right way to approach the heart of man. Legalism has the same root issues with lawlessness, because in both of them, we say, we are the judge. Like we say, I am the judge. And so in legalism, we might say, instead of saying, hey, I'm justified, 
don't leave me alone. We say, okay, I keep these rules. Now I'm justified. And in legalism, we say, if you don't preach laws, if you don't have these rules, then people are just gonna abandon and do what they want. It's a slippery slope. And there's a little bit of truth in that, but we cannot be confused about what saves. And, and what I find is people think if we keep the laws, then we really don't have to let God have his way in our life. Because I keep these rules, I do these things. And it begins to produce the standard with which we measure ourselves, and it begins to produce this arrogance where we begin to say exactly what Jesus said not to say in praying, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like the lawless. Thank God I'm not like those who have this liberal approach. And it builds this pride in us. And, and so what the Pharisees are doing now because of this, they gotta keep this going, is they follow Jesus around. That's what legalistic people do. They watch social media to see when somebody says something that might be wrong and they attack. They listen for gossip that would fuel their suspicions about a leader or about someone. And they have this mentality that it's not okay to eat a sandwich if you have to cut the block of cheese on that day, but it's okay to hassle someone and, and, and pick apart everything that they say. It says in this text that they did not come to listen to Jesus, but to find fault with him. Now, I am not saying to not be on guard because Paul tells us we need to be on guard against false teaching. You need to listen to every sermon, listen to every podcast, read every book, look at every Bible study and ask, is there anything wrong that, with what is being said? When I'm preaching, your life group leader is teaching you, you're reading whatever it is you're reading, you need to be asking, is there anything wrong here? But if you're asking if there's anything wrong here without asking, God, teach me. God, show me my sins and my flaws. Show me how I can help other people. Then you're approaching the Bible in the wrong way. And I want you to know that we believe what the Bible says here. I mean, we're struggling in that, but we believe what the Bible says here. One of our values is that our changing world needs the unchanging word. Like, if our world is headed away from God, why do we water down the Bible and stop giving people the Bible when it's true for 2,000 years? People don't need a soft version of Christianity. They need the God of all ages. That's what they need. That's a value here, okay? But, and we're still debating some of the stuff it says, right? Like the seven horns and the dragons and all that. So there's some tension with this, like free will and sovereignty of God. There's some stuff we're wrestling through. But let me just say this. If you've come here with an additional list of rules for us to follow, like about how the church has to be involved in politics, or some theological camp that you are passionate about and how much I have to talk about it, or preferences of church style that we better implement or we better reinstate, or some ministry you support or that's touched you, or some book you read that you think is life-changing, and you're trying to say, we have to do all these things, the most loving thing I can say to you is be released to give that up or probably find another church. Now, why do I say that? 
because we're too messed up. We already got so much to work on from the Bible that we're not ready for your list. We're not ready for your rules. And to be fully transparent, there's a difference between breaking the rules of the Bible and breaking your rules, so we probably won't ever be ready for your list. I'm probably, even though they might help you and they might work for you, I'm probably never going to teach them. And I hope your life group leader is probably never going to major on them. And you should not be living and talking and carrying yourself in such a way that people are afraid of having a conversation with you about those things. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Christianity is not coming here every Sunday morning wondering if we measure up to the people that are around us. It's saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, and I need to trust in him so that he will make my paths straight. So we can't live in fear of your judgment on those things, and you probably have a few things from here to work on too. And so you probably got your rules down and not these rules. And if you don't think so, you might run the risk of becoming like the Pharisees who had all the Sabbath rules down, but not compassion. And if we're always looking at the law like this, it just keeps leading us to see how short we fall of the law. And the intent of the law, ultimately, is to show us that we need God. And in God's mercy, how we can live for him. David Garland says, one cannot interpret the law correctly unless one refers back to God's intention behind the law. The law was to show man his need for God and to help man live for God. Jesus said, there are two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and all the commandments are fulfilled in this. It means if we really seek to love God and we seek to love people, then all the other things fall under that, and the tension of where the laws begin to you know, conflict, if we will, can be answered in that. And so the question really is, are we pursuing God's heart? Is that what our faith is? Is it us saying we wanna know God more and we want more of God in the way that we live? That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees, Matthew tells us. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you guys have a lot of rules, but your rules don't agree with what God has said. So I'm gonna ask two questions. I think these are provoking questions. The first is this. The Pharisees split hairs with everyone. And God knows the number of hairs on everyone's head. Which of those is more like you? Which one is more like you? Are you always right or are you always right there? 
Do you know and defend? Or do you love and spread? Do people know all of your convictions? Or do people feel valued by you? Because that is your greatest conviction. People seem to think that there's this tension, this, this like opposition between being a people who study theology and the word and learn and people who love and serve. Like, you know, people are, is that a church more focused on education or service? And I'm like, what? Like the more we're in the word and we should be in the word, it should be leading to being servants. Like, you know, we talk about the needs that exist in our church and community, how they're not being met. And, and, and yet we're like, but we study the Bible so much. I, I don't know how a church that is truly full of students of the word cannot be propelled to love and serve. Like, that's just, that doesn't make sense. The more we study who God is, the more we realize how great he is and how great living for him is and how great putting others before ourselves is. The other question I ask you is this, are you more angered by what makes Jesus angry or what makes Pharisees angry? Jesus got angry. And the Pharisees got angry. Which one angers you more, the things that angered Jesus or the things that angered the Pharisees? Jesus got angry about needs being neglected. He got, he got angry about people of faith being complacent. Or are we more angry that we don't drink, but those people over there drink some. Or that people go to Disney World. I, I remember, I have a family member who remembers, this is, they're, not, they're not a Christian. They have nothing to do with the church. They remember as a middle school girl, their Sunday school teacher, gossiping a lot and coming down on Harry Potter. They don't remember her being loving. Like, I, 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 I don't know that lady. I don't know who she is. I don't know where her heart is. I don't know what she meant. But God helped me from being known about being against secondary and third level issues at the sake of being known as a person who loves people. Like, that's the testimony of my 30-year-old family member. I went to church, tried it, was made feel, to feel bad that I liked Harry Potter. Men who are like, I don't have anything to do with church because I was made to feel bad that I like to have a drink here and there. Not saying that we shouldn't be on guard about things that we watch, specifically our children. I have weird rules about what my children can't watch. They don't make sense to some people. They make sense to me, Okay. Not saying we shouldn't be on guard with the troubles of alcohol and all these things, but do we really want to be people who are known by a list of rules that we have or by a great God that we have? And, and our, is our joy really in God's reconciling people to himself? Anytime in ministry, there's just always complaints happening about things. And as the lead pastor, you know, people try to shield you from some of that, but like you hear it. And like, I, I, you know, you hear complaints and, and it'll always be at the time that like good things are happening. And I said this to some of our staff this week, like 
So a couple weeks ago, we said 30 something people to plant a new church. Just to be clear, like, I'm not like being piped into that church. That's not Bayshore number two. Like, we just wanna see the gospel go forth. So we're like sending people, and yet we're still ahead of budget by the grace of God with 30 people going and, and God's reaching young families and, and growing them. Our children's ministry is growing again. Our student ministry is taking off. And we have Alec and Lucas who are phenomenal young leaders. Alec crushed it preaching. I mean, hey, don't get arrogant, Alec, wherever you are, because God will crush you for that. But like he did, and so I'm just so excited. Then last week we heard Jeff's testimony, and then you like hear people who like aren't like just so focused on that. And I said, this, this is how Baptists can be. And it might be other denominations. I just am not in that one. So um, it's like we go to the national championship game, right? Like our team goes to the national championship finally. So obviously not Alabama because they go every year. But, you know, uh, I, they go and we're at the game and we're winning the national championship. And we look over to our friend and we're like, yeah, isn't this awesome? And they're like, I got this popcorn and it's kind of stale. And you're like, what? You're missing the whole point of this. And that's how we can be in our lives. And that's how we can be in church when God is rescuing people from death to life. We're singing about that. God is sending 30 people out of their comfort zone to plant a new church. JP and Megan are going away from their family to spread the gospel. And our community is full of people who think they're good with God, but don't know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we become focused on stale popcorn and secondary issues and we're the daughters and the sons of God. And how many of us are sitting here, maybe even today, and we're missing people with withered hands? People who's walked in this morning in need of a friend to tell them how valuable they are to Christ and their hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. People in need of discipleship. Young couples who, if you don't intervene and engage or someone doesn't in their life, their marriage is headed to divorce and heartache. Somebody who's walking through a health struggle and they need you to be there with them. And if we're following Jesus, our eyes are continually on these needs around us. If we're not following Jesus, we start evaluating. But true religion helps the helpless in their time of need and doesn't debate about how they got into the position they're in, but helps them get out of it. Is that what characterizes us? Adam, you're, Adam Scott, you're in here, right? Can you stand up for a second? So, sorry, I didn't tell you I was gonna do this, but Adam invited uh, me to his uh, retirement ceremony this past, uh, whatever day that was, uh, Thursday, thanks ma'am. And, uh, um, it was kind of long, actually. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> but it was long because so many people wanted to say what it was like being around you. So many people had things to say about your love for them, how you were calm in the storm, literally. <laughs> about how you and Lindsay and your family wrapped your arms around people, were there for them in the darkest times. And you can sit down now, thanks, man. Um, and I'm just so proud of you. And I just, 
anytime I'm at anything like that, just ask, is that how people around me feel? Because a lot of them, I know, they don't believe the things you believe. They probably have different practices. But what they knew most about Adam was how valuable they were to him. And is that what characterizes us? I'm gonna close just by reading Paul's words. Romans chapter 14, I think it says four in your bulletin. That's probably my fault. Romans 14, verse 13 through 19. It's kind of like after the early church is fleshing these things out. Here's what he says. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So just to be very clear, this text is not telling you, okay, now you need to decide what is acceptable for other people to drink and what is acceptable for other people to watch and how it's acceptable for people to practice their faith. This text is telling you, it's telling me, your greatest concern in every relationship you have is that other person's walk. How are you regarding their walk? That's what it's telling us. Verse 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of not God is made manifest, not in rules. It's made manifest in people who've been made right by God and seek to live their life in response to that. And they're full of peace and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Whoever lives this way is, is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul would say in Galatians, consider the needs of others more significant than yourselves. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And Jesus isn't just giving us a bunch of rules to follow. He's showing us how to do this. In his life, in his death on the cross, in the resurrection. So may we as Christians be committed to building others up above all things. May we view the scripture through the correct lens of loving God and loving people and everything serves that that we hear. And if you're here today and you've thought that keeping the law, keeping the rules is what makes you right, if you're honest, it's crushing you. It's crushing you. Because you can't keep it. And that's why Jesus, Jesus was crucified on our behalf. That's why death was arrested. It was our death that we deserved that was arrested. That's how we're righteous, is by trusting in Christ's work for us.
If you're here today and you've never prayed asking Christ to forgive you and committing your life to live for him, come and see me after the end of the service. Text believe to the number that's on the screen. Maybe you're even just wrestling through and have questions about this. I, myself, one of our other pastors would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, help us to see your grace. Help us to live for you. Help us to be people. Your grace and your mercy flows through us into the lives of others. And they know how valuable they are to God because of us. And may everything we practice and do serve that purpose you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.